Returning can be a hard thing, bittersweet and full of contradictions, equal parts stabilizing and paralyzing. To return or to begin again can feel like a fight against gravity. To be honest, I'm feeling it right now, writing this out. So I'll begin here with words that feel familiar, words I wish I could call my own. In the darkness they climbed the wire, handful after handful of barbed wire. Even in the darkness most of them were caught and sent back to the camp inside. But a few are still climbing the barbed wire, or wading through the blue swamp on the other side. What does barbed wire feel like when you grip it as though it were a loaf of bread or a pair of shoes? What does barbed wire feel like when you grip it as though it were a plate and a fork or a handful of flowers? It's an excerpt from a Mary Oliver poem called Rain, and this this is the podcast Gathered, Storied Botanicals. I'm Allison B. Young. It's been a long while, so welcome back to those of you returning, and welcome also to those just joining in for the first time. I chose these words because it can be a source of reassurance to lean on something familiar. There is a sentiment and trust we place on our past, like coming home or leafing through an old photo album. Mary Oliver is one of the first poets I read whose work resonated with me, and has lingered with me for years now. Through her work, I sought out to learn how to write and how to make sense of the world. I also chose these words for the striking line about gripping barbed wire like a handful of flowers. To grip a handful of flowers is part of my own returning. It's likely an understatement to say that the last couple of years have been uncertain and turbulent for most of us. Hard and sad might be a more apt way to describe them. Wading through it, its own kind of blue swamp with looming uncertainties has brought me back home to Virginia, back to my writing and back to working with flowers. In fact, in the last few months I was back in South Carolina at the very shop where I first began designing floral arrangements. You may remember this from the podcast's first episodes. It was a short stint to help through the busy fall season, but it became a lesson in the muscle memory I think we all have within us. I stood at the same design table among familiar faces, to hear the same hum of the floral cooler, to feel the same grip of my clippers and the same soreness in my hands after a day's work. There was also the same feeling of smallness that the low country's marshes can bring out in a person. It was startling how powerful and intuitive this muscle memory was. It was a lesson in returning, circling back to my floristry roots. Returning can often feel like a setback, as though I couldn't cut it somehow. Thinking on this led me to consider beginning or one's roots in a broader sense, and made me realize how little I actually know about them. Whether it's referring to literal root systems of trees and plants, or the idiomatic phrases that have grown into our daily speech, I hadn't realized how pervasive this plant structure is. I'm sure most of us are familiar with the basic functions of a root system, to keep 
trunks and stems upright and to provide nutrients for the plant. But this doesn't give these complex systems justice. As is the case with so much plant life, these seemingly commonplace plants and flowers have far more depth and mystery than meets the eye. I'd venture to say that everyone has seen a root, even those who have no penchant for gardening or the outdoors. They are underground and out of sight, but they are in our kitchens, our medicine cabinets, our history books, and even in our fiction. And in the same way that roots have crept into many aspects of our daily lives, their diversity is just as widespread. Types of roots can be characterized as fibrous, aerial, and even parasitic. For the sake of simplicity, one source boils down these diverse types of roots into three main root systems. The first system is called the taproot system. If you've ever picked up a carrot in the produce section of your grocery store, you've seen and probably eaten a taproot. But for trees like hickory or certain types of oak, the taproot provides central stability as its smaller offshooting roots bolster it. Taproots are less common in mature trees, as that central nerve of the root system typically tapers off after about going three feet down before it divides into smaller offshoots. There are other trees that delve much deeper. One such deep diver is a wild fig tree that grows over Echo Caves in eastern South Africa. Its botanical name is Ficus cretorostoma, while some of its common names include forest fig, the blunt-leaved forest fig, and the more sinister forest strangler or strangler fig. The South African National Biodiversity Institute offers some insight into the ominous named fig tree. If a seed of a strangler fig is dropped onto a branch of another tree, it germinates and sends long aerial roots down to the ground. From there, the young fig develops more roots and stems that can branch and fuse to each other, and in time it can completely smother or strangle and eventually kill the tree it happened to land on. The strangler fig can even turn on itself, where its roots can drop down from its own branches and strangle or buttress its own trunk. These aerial roots that plunge through air and fuse to branches and trunks creates a beautiful, eerie tapestry, intricate layers of limbs, vines, and roots all weaving around one another, a sweeping movement of smooth gray bark working down the trunk and into the soil, where the roots continue to grow, reaching depths of about 400 feet. They even run through those echo caves like a water pipe. The strangler fig is an anomaly, though. For one thing, there's evidence that trees tend to be less domineering or violent with other trees. According to an article by Valentina Lacamarcino of Harvard, trees are inclined to look out for their neighbors through a symbiotic relationship of fungi and bacteria. This relationship between roots and fungi is called mycorrhizal network. This network allows trees to recognize other trees of the same species, and even warn of dangers or offer help if a neighboring tree is suffering from a toxin, predator, or other stressor. These warnings are referred to as a technique called allelopathy, 
and it isn't so different from our body's ability to ward off illness or injury. Lago Marcino writes that, through this mycorrhizal network, communication among trees has been shown to increase their fitness and resiliency. The second thing that separates the strangler fig from other trees is that most roots tend to spread outward, just under the surface of soil. This brings me to the second type of root system, the lateral root system. Rather than a large, straight taproot, lateral roots obtain their stability from the weight of the tree and root spread. According to one source, these root systems don't necessarily have a lot of root mass, but because the roots are so widespread, the tree can be supported without investing so much energy into the roots. About 80% of tree species are held up by this type of root system. And the third type of root system is referred to as the heart or oblique root system. Red oak, honey locust, and sycamore trees are all considered to have heart root systems. Its stability relies on the weight of the root ball, counteracting the weight of its trunk and crown of branches. This system functions similarly to a ball and socket joint, making it a surprisingly weak system once soil is wet. The combination of soaking soil and high winds can send these trees rotating from their root ball and toppling over. Perhaps because they are predominantly underground and out of sight is why we remain unaware of a root's far reach, or else it's been so ingrained in us that we don't notice the countless links we've made with roots. From ancient Greek botany to medieval folklore, horror movies, and to modern science, roots have grown far and wide into aspects of our humanity. And this includes the imagination, specifically that of Ira Levin, who wrote Rosemary's Baby. Readers and audiences of its movie adaptation first learn of the Tannis root in Levin's work. A small but crucial part of the story, the root appears coiled within a silver charm given to protagonist Rosemary by her nosy neighbor with a hidden agenda. As a fandom source explains it, the Tannis root, a spongy matter derived from swampy regions with a pungent odor, is often used to give power to a talisman that is given to the victim as a gift, but secretly used by a witch to control the unsuspecting wearer, as it happened with Rosemary. It serves as an occult anchor, rooting Rosemary in isolation and dangers that are both real and supernatural. While Tannis Root is fictional, it's based on a real plant with even more myth and mystery around it. Mandragora is the genus for the family of nightshade plants. More commonly, it is referred to as a mandrake. In more modern pop culture, you've likely seen it in Harry Potter or Pan's Labyrinth, but the plant is referenced as far back as Shakespeare, the Bible, and ancient Egyptian, Arabic, and Hebrew texts. The U.S. Forest Service writes that during the Middle Ages, mandrake was Europe's most significant medicinal and magical plant, capable of curing practically everything from infertility and insomnia, to foretelling the future, to shielding a soldier in battle. Unfortunately, the legend around mandrake indicates that the line between poison and medicine isn't so clear-cut. For a plant that has names like Satan's apple, devil's testicle, 
and its old Arabic moniker, Master of the Life Breath, the Mediterranean-based flower looks unassuming, even kind of wholesome. It lies low to the ground, a grouping of textured leaves that resemble cowslip or dandelion greens. A cluster of star-shaped blooms grow from the leaf grouping, ranging in color from a soft lavender to a yellow-green shade. While the plant above ground remains short, the taproot can grow up to two feet in length before forking into two roots. Because of this growth habit, the root is often compared to a human. In fact, a quick Google search will give you countless images of root humanoid creatures, both sculpted and actual roots someone dug up. Some are just a torso with two legs and a growth of vegetation for its head, while others are complete with arms and faces. Their expressions are equally diverse, ranging from the cheerful and delighted to the horrified, and in many, they are often accompanied by a dog. The Old English Herbarium, this 10th century text that provides medical remedies from over 180 plants, may offer some insight to this pairing. Based on a passage in the Herbarium, Instructions for harvesting mandrake sound like what I imagine directions to the Fountain of Youth would be. This plant called mandrake, it begins, is large and glorious. With the allure of some alchemist's quest, I imagine the old parchment could have included the following guidance. It offers healing in all its forms, but its seeker must be pure of heart, sharp of mind, and quick on their feet. The mandrake's power is so great and powerful that it wants to flee quickly from an impure soul. They must wait for the cover of night, even the darkness of a new moon, to seek the mandrake, and they must bring a hungry dog with them. You will know the mandrake in the dark, for it glows like a lantern lit close to the earth. With a spade of iron, or a staff of ivory, dig around the mandrake, careful not to touch its leaves. When it first emerges from the soil, fasten one end of a rope to its hands and feet, then fasten the other end of rope to the dog's neck. Once the rope is secure, throw the dog some meat just far enough away that it must pull up the mandrake to reach it. Then you must run. Run. Run as swiftly as your legs will carry you, for if you are in earshot of the mandrake's scream, you will not survive the harvest. I took the liberty of rewriting the herbarium's passage to play up the otherworldly and captivating imagery of this plant that glows like a lantern, the elaborate scheme in pulling it up from the ground, the heartbreak of sacrificing a dog in the process, and a plant that could scream, and not only that, kill you with its scream. I imagine how someone desperate for a cure, or simply looking for an adventure might be lured in by this plant's supposed power. Whether it's the pungent tannus root or the screaming mandrake, the roots of our non-fiction world still hold some mystery of their own. To wade through the swamps of the American Southeast, you'll likely come upon the surreal outgrowths of the cypress tree's shallow lateral roots. If Ira Levin's tannis root were real, it might grow in this fairy landscape. These outgrowths are called cypress knees, 
Breaking through the dark waters and pluff mud, cypress knees reach up, looking like small, deformed limbs. One source compares them to termite mounds, but it's unclear what their function to the tree really is. When it comes to floral design, flowers often show up to a shop without their roots. That becomes a crucial part of the designer's job, to engineer a framework or a structure, an echo of a root system, that allows for a floral arrangement to stand on its own. It's one of the more challenging but compelling parts of working as a florist. The traditional method of a framework has been oasis, a green brick with a texture like dusty styrofoam that became the standard in most floral shops in the 1950s. By soaking it in water, it becomes a hard sponge that holds moisture and flower stems once you've pierced them into its form. If you've ever seen funeral flowers on a casket, you've seen oasis or floral foam doing its job. But more and more, the floral industry is learning how harmful floral foam is to the planet and to our health. So many designers are finding innovative alternatives, even returning to floral foam's predecessor. Floral tape, chicken wire, and even rubber bands can all serve as tools for building an arrangement's framework. But there is one tool that works at the point where function and form meet. The flower frog comes in many shapes and designs, but when I first saw it, it looked like someone attached spikes to a hockey puck. Others look like small cages, and others still look like a squatty dish with small holes in it. While the origin of its name, frog, is up for debate, there is a general agreement that like the small amphibian hiding just under the water's surface, the flower frog assumes a similar position within a vase. The earliest known examples of flower frogs date back to 14th century Japan. They were made of iron and included those spikes, or a pincushion design, which was referred to as kenzan, the Japanese word for needle mountains. These needle mountains were the key structure for the precise and minimal designs of ikibana, a Japanese style of arranging flowers. Since the original needle mountains, the flower frog took on a more decorative quality, becoming popular in the 1920s and 30s. Collectors can find frogs that are shaped into animal figurines, including crabs, turtles, and of course frogs. They are meant to be seen through a glass vase and be part of the overall floral design. When I first began designing flowers, the go-to method for building a structure was, oddly enough, another flower. The hydrangea typically has a large head made out of small florets. This network of its lateral stems and small blossoms creates a grid through which your other flowers can fit. The more stems you fit in your vase, the more secure and stable your design will be. I've had the chance to use all the methods I've described, but returning to flowers in these recent months, I've used the simplest of methods, stems of greenery. It can be painstaking to begin with, but the more you weave stems together, the stronger your grid or base will be to support the flowers of your arrangement. And while you don't need to reach the depths of the strangler fig with your stems, it's helpful to think of it as its own kind of weaving. This type of weaving isn't so different from the writer's job, either. Even in writing out this episode, I struggled mightily to find a framework in which these ideas might fit together and make sense. 
For the first couple of months, I'd sit down to write, and it felt as though every word I put on the page, every stem I placed on the vase, fell out right away. Returning or beginning again can feel this way. It can feel as though we have no roots, nothing to hold our own selves up with. Or it can feel as though we are uprooting ourselves before we have a chance to establish any kind of stability, swiveling from our root ball like a heart's root system. In other ways, it can also feel like you're reacquainting yourself with your own roots, your own origin story. But after exploring the world of roots, it became clear that their expanse goes far beyond the ground we walk on. As if we were offshoots from a tree's root system, roots are an integral part of our nature, our speech, and our way of understanding the world. To be uprooted, or to return to one's roots, are expressions native English speakers understand inherently. We arrange our ancestors along the roots and limbs of family trees. A whole industry has grown out of the desire to learn about our genetic roots. We have even drawn parallels between a root's imagery with the structure of our language. Anyone who's taken the Latin course could likely point out the root of a word. And to go further, these parallels have reached our very anatomy. Scientists quickly drew a connection between the look of a tree's branches and roots to the structure of nerve cells that comprise the human brain. In fact, dendrites, the term to describe projections from a nerve cell, comes from the Greek word dendron for tree. I mentioned earlier that returning or beginning again can feel like a setback. In some ways, my returning home and returning to flowers makes me doubt whether I've made any progress, whether I'm just going in circles, or whether I've grown at all these last few years. Maybe I'm just retreating from life's challenges. Maybe I can't cut it in this world. But this exploration of roots has offered me a different vantage point. It is the view that, like the growth habit of many roots, literal, idiomatic, and folkloric, it is a kind of weaving. With each new offshoot, each iteration of myth or framework, the tapestry of these roots become more intricate, more nuanced, and stronger. It is reinforcing its structure so that it might hold up something new, something with promise, something that can still grow. I hope that this might be the case for my own trajectory, and I hope this for anyone else who might be feeling as though they've faced setbacks these last couple of years. The expanse of underground tangles can teach us a lot. I continue to wind back to the idea that stepping outside for a walk means I'm treading over the secret network, these incredible fists gripping at the earth, handful after handful exploring the breadth and depth of their home, making offerings and taking in gifts, heeding the warnings of their neighbors, sharing knowledge and nourishment. Gathered, Storied Botanicals is a monthly podcast. My aim in returning is to release new episodes on the third Friday of every month. That means you can come back on March 18th for the next episode. If you've liked what you heard here, please consider rating the show on Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. You can also head over to the website gathered-storiedbotanicals.com if you'd like more flowers in your life. Thank you for listening, and until next time.